I um, hate it when we sing a song like that right before I speak. <laughs> I am of such an age demographic that when I say, all my life you have been faithful, it means more than when some of you young bucks say it. All my life he has been faithful. And, uh, you know, as I stood there singing that song, one of the phrases that you sing over and over again is your goodness is running after me. And uh, during my lifetime, I've had several different definitions of what that might mean. Um, Steve and Jen, our, our daughter and son-in-law, are not here this morning because they've gone with Michaela, who is going to be sharing her, her ministry to come there at, uh, at Buffalo Prairie Church this morning. Uh, next Sunday will be her last, Michaela's last Sunday with us as she, before she heads to the Philippines to take on a ministry with uh, little girls that have been trafficked. From four years old to 12 years old will be in that home. So next week we're going to have a commissioning service and we're going to send her out. And the reason she's going to the Philippines is because right now the Philippines is number one uh, it's a dubious distinction, but number one in, in uh, that world of, of, of trafficking of little, little girls. And she's going there to make a difference. And I see that. I, you know, it's self-centered a bit, but I see that as part of God's goodness running after me. As uh, one generation after another. Psalms... When the psalmist wrote, he said that uh, you have been a shelter, Lord, to every generation. And uh, we've seen that true in our family from Faith's parents and my mom who went to the mission field and then Faith and I who had that privilege and then our kids and now our granddaughter, oldest granddaughter is headed in that, that direction. And um, that is all evidence of the goodness of God. At work in the life of a guy who hasn't deserved it. I mean, I, I mean that. I'm not saying that. A guy who hasn't deserved it. But God has been faithful to himself as he has related to me down through the years. So, uh, I'll be here next Sunday if you can to send Michaela off. And, and uh, we want to, as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, we want to honor people like that who risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. And yes, we're worried about, worried is the wrong word, we're concerned about security there. They will have a panic room there in the house where the girls are uh, because it is a very dangerous ministry in terms of potential retaliation. But uh, thank you for putting up with that moment of nostalgia. This morning, we'll be continuing our studies in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace, and this is part 35, and entitled, The Yoke of Slavery, and we'll be unpacking 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Well, if you've been listening these last 30 seconds, and I know you have, then you've understood that the holiday season is over and we'll be getting back to Paul's letters to Timothy. You probably know by now that there are six chapters in 1 Timothy and four chapters in 2 Timothy. 
And during 2022, we finished the first five chapters of 1 Timothy, so that means that there are five chapters left in these two letters of Paul to Timothy. And that means that our present trajectory will finish 2 Timothy sometime in late October or early November. And then there will be roughly four or five weeks when we'll take on a shorter book of the Bible, maybe one of the Old Testament books. And then in December, we'll start a four-week series entitled Watch the Lamb. And that series will conclude the morning of Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year. Uh, I'm not expecting all of you to remember this, but uh, I just thought I'd fill you in in case you're one of those who (laughs) who likes to know what's coming next. It's important to some of my grandkids, so I'm I'm sure it's important to you. But now... Back to Paul's letters to Timothy. We finished 1 Timothy chapter 5 right before Christmas, and we heard Paul's heart as he warned us not to be hasty when we begin the process of choosing and ordaining someone to be an elder to serve in our church. And and there at the end of chapter 5, Paul reminds us of something that we know. We often meet new people, and, and there are some people out there who, like the old saying, wear their hearts on their sleeve. Uh, you, know the, you know right away, or at least you suspect, that this is a person you might want to learn a few things from. Or maybe you say to yourself, that's somebody I'm just for a little while at least, I'm going to keep my distance from that guy. I don't, I don't you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but the truth is, it takes a long time to get to know someone really well, even those people who wear their hearts on their sleeve. Paul even goes so far as to say that when it comes to some people, their reputation precedes them. Their reputation arrives before they do. In other words, you may never have met them, but you know who they are because of what you've heard. And I've known this, I've known this to happen in my own life. I'll, I'll introduce myself, you know, in a conversation out there in the middle of nowhere. I'm Jay Jackson, and, and I, I, I'm not kidding. People, <laughs> I've had people say, oh, you're Jay Jackson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you want to make of it? I, you know, I don't, I don't know what they're thinking at that point. Normally, I choose to say, I don't care what you've heard. It was on fire when I got there. I don't know what you're talking about right now, but, you know, I try to put fires out and not cause them. But, but uh, you've heard about them, but in, in the end, we, we don't want to judge a book by its cover. And we want to take it for granted that other people say, well, that what other people say about someone may not always be accurate. So it makes sense to take the time that's necessary to get to know someone, especially when we're considering that person as someone who's going to lead in our church, who's going to set an example in our church that others can follow. Now, you know how often we emphasize the importance of context when it comes time to interpret Scripture. We say that because Paul and other New Testament writers are not often in the habit of changing topics as they move from one point to another, one thought to another. Normally, the thoughts are all connected by a particular context. But, but, but Paul was very clear about the context to which he was speaking in his first letter to Timothy. And I feel it's important to remind you of that as we start into 2023. Paul wrote to Timothy to say that he was hoping to come and visit Timothy soon, but was aware that things might happen that would prevent him from doing that. He might be delayed in his plans. And that's when Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing, to you the, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. In other words, Paul wanted Timothy, wrote to Timothy because he wanted Timothy to know how to do church. 
So the idea of how we should do church is the meta-narrative that gives context to the whole of 1 Timothy. And the context of knowing how to do church is the thing that pulls Paul's letter together, especially at times when he abruptly changes the subject, like he's going to do this morning. And what I mean by that is, in 1 Timothy 5, for example, Paul talked to us about how we should relate to people who are older than we are. He talked to us about how to relate to people who are the same age and younger than we are. In that same chapter, he also talked to us about widows and elders and drinking wine when safe water is not available and about not being hasty when we choose <coughs> excuse me, and ordain someone to lead us. And that's quite a bit of variety. But all of those things are speaking to how we should do church. That's, that's what overarches everything that Paul writes in 1 Timothy. And this morning would be the same thing. Paul will be telling us how we should do church, but he'll change the subject to something that we might find unsettling, to say the least. Paul is going to talk to Timothy about how slaves should do church. And Paul will wonder out loud whether it should make a difference to the slave if his master, whether or not his master, believes in Jesus. He's, that's what he's going to do. And, and if we're going to take on something that large and that complicated and that potentially volatile in just 40 minutes, we need to get started. And you know that we always get started with a passage, unpacking a passage, uh, and by, by reading the passage and hearing a story that speaks into that passage before we attempt to unpack that passage. So let's get to that. Please stand with me if you're able and read aloud with me once again if you're able from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Read with me. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Thank you. We know from other books that we've studied that God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in, in Christ Jesus, and that's why we're always glad to read and discover new truths, uh, new blessings, so that we can understand them. I want to tell you a story from God's Word this morning, but it's a story of a slightly different nature than the ones that I usually tell. It's kind of like when you go see a movie, and, and right there in the beginning credits, some of the movies say, the following is a true story, while others say the following is based on a true story. I don't know if you've noticed that nuance, but there's a, a fairly significant difference between those two things. The top one there means that this is what actually happened and this is how it happened. That's what they're going to lay out there for you, and uh, certainly it's from their perspective, but this is, that's, that's what that means. This is a true story. The bottom one means we're going to tell you a story that probably happened the way that we're going to tell it, and we're, gonna, and we're saying that based on other stuff that we know. In other words, they're saying that they're sure of their facts even though they found those facts in other stories that are related to the, the one that they're telling. They mean that the story you're about to watch is accurate, but it may not be entirely true because there's a subtle difference between accurate and true. Accurate implies perspective. From your perspective, this is an accurate accounting. 
but it may not be actually what happened. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is I'm going to tell you a story this morning about slavery in Israel, but the story will not be based on actual individuals or historical events. The story will be about some individuals that I made up, but what will happen to them is based on and consistent with the Old Testament laws that govern slavery and explain how slavery should work. So with that sketchy background, this is the story from God's Word from Exodus chapter 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 15. There was a man named Jedaliah who was a faithful servant of God who lived during the same time as the Apostle Paul. He wasn't wealthy, but he was in business for himself, and one day he took out a rather large loan to expand his business. Expansion didn't go as he had hoped, and his business began to fail, and unfortunately he found himself unable to pay back that large loan. His creditor, the individual who had loaned him the money, contacted him shortly after his own business began to fail to tell him that he, the one from whom he had borrowed the money, was also overextended. And as a consequence, he was calling in the loan. The man who, owed, who, who, loaned Jed, who had loaned Jedaniah that large sum of money absolutely needed Jedaliah to pay him back now. Now, there was no one else that Jedaliah knew from whom he could borrow such a large sum, so that left him only one option. Jedaliah went to a wealthy landowner and told him the situation and asked the landowner to pay off his debt in exchange for Jedaliah becoming the man's indentured servant for three years. The landowner agreed and gave Jedaliah the money that he needed to pay off his debt. Jedaliah took that money to the creditor who had loaned it, and the next day he showed up at work at the plantation of the landowner who had paid him in advance for his service. When Jedaliah had worked for one of, the, of his three years, the landowner made a similar agreement with a woman named Hava who agreed to work for the landowner for three years in exchange for his paying off her debt as well. Now, neither Jedaliah nor Hava were married, and in time, they fell in love and got married and had two beautiful children together. <laughs> anyway, finally, the day came when Jedaliah's three-year commitment was up, and it was time for him to be set free from his responsibilities to the man who had paid off his debt. But if you've been keeping up with the, with the math in the story, you know that Chava still had another year to go on her commitment. So Jedaliah was faced with the decision of going free alone while Chava continued to work for the landowner and filled, fulfilled her contractual agreement. Or he could choose to remain in the employ of the landowner. Jedaliah thought about it, and then he went to the landowner and said, I like working for you, and, and more importantly, I love my wife and children, so if you'd be agreeable, I'd like to remain here and continue working for you. But that created a problem. You see, the landowner was required by law to release Jedaliah from his commitment. He didn't have a choice about that. And there was nothing that the landowner could do unless... Jedaliah requested that he be allowed to continue to work for the landowner, for the man who had paid off his loan. But Jewish law, God's law, required some additional steps before Jedaliah could be allowed to remain there with his wife and children and his employer. 
The law required some things of both the landowner and the slave before the deal could be sealed. In fact, in response to Jedaliah's request, the landowner was required by law to take him before the magistrates so that they could hear Jedaliah's request with their own ears from his own mouth. That was an absolute requirement. And that's because once the slave had completed his contract, the slave owner could not keep Jedaliah apart from Jedaliah's statement that he wanted to stay. So Jedaliah repeated his request in the presence of the magistrates, and they agreed that he should continue to, to continue working for the landowner. And the next step is a bit odd, but very meaningful. Jedaliah went and stood by the doorpost of the door in the landowner's house. The landowner took a sharp tool and pressed it through Jedaliah's ear as Jedaliah was leaning against that doorpost. And this left a mark both in Jedaliah's ear and the doorpost, and those marks stood as testaments that Jedaliah and the landowner had made a new agreement. Jedaliah then got back to work and remained in the employ of the landowner for the rest of his life. And in time, Chava had the same decision to make when her contracted time had been completed. And since we're making this up as we go, we'll just say, we'll take the romantic route here and, and say that Chava decided to stay with Jedaliah and serve the landowner by her si his side for the rest of her life as well. So she appeared before the magistrates and then stood beside the doorpost and left a mark right there near where the sharp tool had left the mark from Jedaliah. And that is the story, accurate if not true, from God's Word. Now before I say anything else, I, I want to share a couple of definitions with you that come from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, if that's okay. The first is the definition of the word indentured. That does not mean that you wear false teeth. It means something else I was surprised to discover. Indentured means required by contract to work for another for a certain period of time. The second definition is for the term indentured servant. An indentured servant is a person who signs and is bound by indentures to work for another for a specified time, especially in return for payment of travel expenses and maintenance and other such things. What I've just described, what that describes for us up there on the screen is how slavery worked in the Jewish economy from the time of Moses, and this is what was in place during Paul's day. And what I've just described is the context to which Paul was speaking when he used the word slavery. You read it a moment ago in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I understand the horrors of slavery. I am saying that slavery is a stain on the American conscience. I'm saying that I'm ashamed that our nation ever condoned or allowed slavery since our nation believes that it is self-evident that all men are created equal. I'm saying that I'm ashamed that we ever participated in the horror and injustice that took place in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century when men, women, and children were stolen and kidnapped from their homeland and exploited and then forced to work as slaves as they labored against their will to produce tobacco and cotton and other crops. I'm ashamed that my homeland had any part in any and all of that. But I want to say it loud and clear that that awful thing that I just described is, has nothing to do with what Paul 
is talking about here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. They are not the same thing at all. I say that because the story that I told you earlier about a man named Jedaliah is based on God's law. God's law allowed for indentured servants, but neither God's law nor the Apostle Paul allowed for or condoned the international slave trade that haunted African blacks for centuries. I say that because in that story that was based on God's law, Jedaliah originally willingly entered into that contract with the landowner. And then, at the end of three years, Jedaliah himself willingly extended that contract into a lifetime commitment. He extended his contract not because he needed the money, but because he loved working for the landowner. So the landowner had obviously treated him well and had provided a, a good home and, and living for Jedaliah, Chava, and their children. And that's why Jedaliah willingly entered into the contract in the first place and then willingly extended the contract with the landowner. He loved working for the landowner and he loved his family and his home situation and he wanted to remain in that situation for the rest of his life. It's the very thing that I described unintentionally when I first stood up here. Being willing, desiring to serve for a lifetime just because your master is so awesome and because you love him so much. And the magistrates were in place to make sure that he wanted to stay with the landowner and that he wanted to continue working for the landowner for the rest of his life. And to seal that relationship, Jedaliah was willing to stand beside the doorpost as a sharp tool was pushed through his ear into the doorpost. And as we mentioned, as we told the story, that left a mark both on his ear and on the doorpost. In that moment, Jedaliah willingly became what we would call a bond slave to his master. And not coincidentally, Paul used that term when he introduced himself in a variety of contexts during the first century when he wrote. For example, Romans chapter 1, 1 verse 1 in the NIV says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The word that the NIV, NIV translates servant there is literally bond slave in the original language. And a bond slave in scripture describes someone who loves his master so much that they willingly obey their master in the same way that an owned slave would obey their master, but for different reasons. Of course, in Paul's case, Jesus was his master. And Paul was so committed to obeying Jesus that he even called Jesus his Lord and Master. So the relationship that Paul had with Jesus was a willing relationship, but it was also a committed relationship. But for practical purposes, make sure to remember that the slaves that Paul is talking about here in this passage we're looking at this morning were men and women who had willingly entered into slavery so that they could pay off a debt. Also make sure to remember that there was always a time limit on their service and they were paid in advance for their labor. And that means that the master did not own his slaves. He owned their time because he had already paid them in advance for their service. That is such an important point. The master did not own his slaves. He owned their time because he had already paid them in advance for up to six years 
prior to the commitment that they made. Back in 1983, I had a job abating asbestos, and no, that's not me up there on the screen, but that's how I dressed. That's the gear that I wore, and that's what it looked like in the confine. We'd wear gear like that in a confine that was, uh, well, in summer in Detroit, it was, it was 120 degrees, 125 degrees in the confine there. Back then, the nation had just begun to understand how dangerous asbestos is because it causes mesothelioma, a form of lung cancer. Strands of asbestos are, are fireproof, but they're also so thin and so tiny that they can actually split a cell in the human lung. And when that cell replicates, it replicates with the same damage and then continues to propagate until all of the cells in the lungs are damaged and unable to do their job. And that's why anyone who worked to abate asbestos had to wear gear like that. In any event, it was a very difficult job that paid almost seven times the minimum wage back then. The job that I got was in Michigan, so I went there with my, my family and was housed there by my employer. Right after I started the job, one morning on my way to work, uh, the, the, the car that we were driving broke down, and, and long and short, it needed a new transmission. We had no credit card at the time, and the repairs were going to be expensive, delightfully or outrageously expensive, as you might guess. In other words, I needed a car to go back and forth to the job site, but I was unable to use the car that we had, so I went to Tom, who was the owner of the company and my boss at the time, and I told him what had happened. I told him that I wanted to keep working for him, but I'd need the car to make that happen, and then I asked for an advance on my salary. He took me into his office and handed me the cash that he would have paid me for the week, including what I would have made on overtime. And I called the mechanic and told him to go ahead with the repairs, and then I was able to pay him up front for the work that he would be doing because I wanted it done quickly. I worked all that next week, and every morning when I went to work, I was aware that I had already been paid for the work that I would do that day. So Tom didn't own me, but he did own my time that week as I worked to earn what he had already paid me. Are you tracking with me? This is not complicated, but this is important because this is how slavery worked in the first century. This is the slavery to which Paul was speaking when he wrote in the first century. Now, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I've experienced something like or understand the horrors of the form of slavery that was prevalent in the world and, and here in America for centuries. I'm saying that I understand and have experienced in a small way what Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he uses the word slavery. And right now, I'm just going to speak from the context to which Paul was speaking when he wrote this passage. So when we see the words slave and master in this passage, we need to be very clear that the master did not own the slave. The master owned the slave's time because the master had already paid the slave in advance for his labor. Forgive me for being so repetitive here, but you need to understand this. Because there's a rumor out there that Paul approved of slavery. The kind of slavery that happened here in America. He didn't. There's a rumor out there that God's word approves of slavery. It doesn't. Not that kind of slavery. It approves of this kind of slavery. Where someone owns someone else's time, even for an extended period of time. The slave was not bound in chains, but he or she was bound by the agreement that he or she had with the master. 
Now, that kind of arrangement, that kind of agreement, that kind of contract can go bad in two important ways. Firstly, the slave could get lazy and not work hard because he has already been paid in full, and that means he can't be fired no matter how much of a goof-off he becomes. Secondly, the master could become abusive and unreasonable, unreasonable because he's already paid the slave in advance for his labor, and that means that the man or woman can't leave for three years or however long the contract was, no matter how much of a jerk the master is or becomes. And Paul's about to give some advice to both the slave and the master because if both are diligent and kind, the relationship will work better for Both of them. This is not rocket science. This just makes sense. And the kind of relationship will work better for both of them because they're following principles that also come from God's Word that teach us how to manage laws that come from God's Word. So Paul will speak to both slaves and the masters who were involved in a bond-slave-master relationship like we've been discussing. Besides that, I believe that what Paul says here will have meaning for us And it will have bearing on our lives as we find the modern equivalent to the ancient slave-master relationship that Paul is going to talk to us about. But, as always, Paul wants us to be able to apply the truth of what he is saying without taking the truth in directions that he never intended. So we're trying to walk that line as we go. And it's clear from this passage this morning that Paul was concerned that some of the truths that he taught would be misconstrued, either intentionally or unintentionally, by the people to whom he wrote. You see, in his letters, Paul talks a whole bunch, talks about a whole bunch of things, and and whole bunch, by the way, is the the official theological term. And, And among those whole bunch of things that Paul talked about is the truth that we have been set free. He talks a lot about that in his letters. According to Romans 6, 17, we were slaves to sin, our old nature, but we've been set free from that slavery. According to Romans 8, 15, we used to be slaves to fear, but we no longer are. According to 2 Peter 2, 19, we used to be slaves to depravity, but we no longer are. And look what Paul says in Galatians 5, 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So we we were all slaves spiritually, but Paul and Peter have both taught us that we have been set free by the death of Christ on our behalf. Paul wants us to be sure to take note of the fact that, that part of the reason that Jesus died was to free us from spiritual slavery. And Paul wants us to make sure that we stand firm in that freedom and not allow ourselves again to be pulled into a yoke of slavery. That's the story for people who were slaves spiritually. And that would include all of us. But what does that say to people who are slaves physically? What does that say to people who are literally slaves? because of an agreement that they've made with someone who has paid them in advance for their labor. Have they also been set free physically, besides being set free spiritually, by the death of Christ on their behalf? Well, of course, to the answer to that question is yes, they have been set free spiritually by the death of Christ on their behalf. And at the same time, no, they have not been physically set free by the death of Christ on their behalf any more than you were set free from your mortgage when you decided, by the way, 
That's what the scripture means when it says that the, the, the borrower is slave to the lender because of this extended contract. You've got to work for the person, people who lent you the money for your house, and that's why financial peace is important. I, and I, I hope you'll attend it and, and enjoy what, what comes out of that. But, but uh, you haven't been set free from your mortgage, and, and the, the slaves, the bond slaves, were not set free physically from their responsibility Christ didn't die to set us free from contracts into which we've entered with other people. Christ died to set us free from sin and fear and depravity. And there's another angle from which this is true. Yes, we have been set free by the death of Christ, and that means that we don't have to work for our salvation, but we don't, it doesn't mean that we don't have to work for our sustenance. We still got to get out there and work to feed your family, even though you've been set free. So, even though we've all been set free, those who were slaves at the moment they, were, they believed were still slaves after they believed. But, while we're all busy enjoying our freedom, it would have been easy for an actual first century slave, think about this, uh, to begin to resent the fact that he's still a slave. And, it might prompt, slave own, prompt slaves to think that they can and should take steps to get out from under the yoke of slavery, and perhaps even run away. In fact, in the New Testament, we have the record of a slave who did run away, a slave named Onesimus. And if you want to understand that better, you could read the one-chapter book of Philemon later today. It won't take you very long, and it might be very informative. But think about this. If a slave were to hear Paul's teaching from God's word about freedom, and then having heard that teaching that slave ran away from the master who had loaned him the money, then the master that had held that slave under contract would blame God, right, and the apostle Paul and the teaching from God's word. Remember, the slaves that we're talking about are not people who were owned by other people. They are people who had willingly contracted with other, to work for other people so that they could be paid off, so they could pay off money with money they were paid in advance. So if they left, they would be breaking the contract they'd made with their employer to be paid now for work that they would do later. In other words, those slaves would not be liberating themselves. They'd just be breaking a contract and proving themselves unfaithful because of refusing to keep their promise. And that is not what Paul intended as a result to his teaching. And if they defaulted and ran, that would put God and the teaching from God's word in a very bad light. And that's what Paul says, or what he means, when he says to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.1, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. That's what Paul means there. He's not telling slaves in America to not run away. He's not saying that at all. He's just saying, you're under contract to somebody, stay there because I'm not teaching you that you're free from that contract. If those contracted workers were to run away, it would bring shame on the name of Christ and those who serve him. But what does any of this have to do with us today? We've got to ask that, that because of the fact that you, you think your employer, <laughs> well, actually... If you think your employer is a slave driver, that doesn't make you a slave, okay? That, 
That's not how it works, and that's not what we're talking about. Still, what Paul is saying today, and what he's talking about here, applies to all of us, even though today we prefer the terms employee and employer to slave and master. And remember, we use those terms employee and employer because today we're not paid in advance for six years. I, maybe you've got a contract like that. Maybe the I don't know, NFL and NBA and other places work like that and you know, you're under contract. You don't, I don't know if they get their money. I don't know how it works. I've, I've got people that I could ask though. I'll find out for you and let you know. But, but typically we're not paid in advance for up to six years. We're paid at the end of the week or the end of two weeks or the end of the month for work that we have already done, right? Under the 21st American system, system the employer typically plays, pays the employee for work the employee has already completed or already done. Under the first century Jewish system, the slave worked for the master because the master had already paid him for the work he would do in the future. I hope that the differences between the two systems are clear to all of us, but at the same time, I hope that we understand it well enough to know that we may describe it differently, but the principles still apply 2,000 years after Paul articulated them. And I'm not sure that I should say this out loud, but we can all get up in arms over the fact that Paul uses the word slave here. Or we can sit back and say, you know, this is really good advice for anyone who's working for someone else for a guaranteed agreed-upon wage. That's really good advice. Because in case you missed it before, Paul used the word slave but he didn't mean somebody that was owned by someone else, but someone whose time was owned. And remember, a slave in Paul's terminology is just someone who gets paid before instead of after. But whether you're getting paid or before or after, you work. Verse 2 in 1 Timothy chapter 6 has something important to say to us. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. So if your employer is not a believer, listen, if your employer is not a believer, your willingness to work hard and make things work for him or her may be the thing that brings your employer to Christ. But if your employer is a believer, then you have even more motivation to work hard for him or her. I mean, if you think about it, if the employer and the employee are both believers, then we all know who really holds the authority in that company. Remember, in 1 Peter 1, Peter, inspired by the Spirit of God, wrote, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. That's why he's in charge in any company where everybody is believers. If you are a believer today, then you can say with confidence that you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And that means that your value has been set by the price that God was willing to pay for you. Your value has been set by the price that God was willing to pay for you. When both the employer and the employee are believers, then they owe one another immense respect. And I'll tell you why. One day, the God of all the universe was in a place where he was free to choose anything, anything in the universe as the thing that would be his very own. Do you know what he chose? He chose you. 
He chose you. He wanted you. He wanted a friendship with you, even though he knew that having a friendship with you would cost him the life of his one and only son. And that makes you the choicest and most valuable thing in the universe. And don't let the humanist get to you. You are the choicest and most valuable thing in the universe, but that's not because of any intrinsic value you have as a human being. Instead, it's because of the price that God paid for you. And all along through our lives, uh, you and I have made foolish and worthless decisions along the way, but that does not make you worthless because nothing can change God's opinion of you. And nothing can erode your value. And that's because nothing can undo the price that God paid for you. And I know that we all like to think of ourselves as unique. And I, I guess if we are, then uh, let me just say that you, Tim, this morning you are unique. <laughs> just like every one of the 7.4 billion people on planet Earth. It's, it's true of all of us. We're all unique. If, we, you know, if we're exactly the same, then one of us is not needed. And I'm I suspect I know. It's probably me. I don't know. But I know that we like to think of ourselves as unique, but in this one area, we are all equal. God thinks that you're worth the life of his one and only son. God thinks that you're worth the life of his one and only son. And for me, this is a seminal truth because I may think that a fellow believer is a jerk, and I'm not looking at anybody when I say that. But I may think that a fellow believer is a jerk but God still thinks that that person was worth the life of his one and only son. So since God and I disagree on that matter, one of us must be wrong. Without putting it to a vote, I know that I'm the one who's wrong about you, so I'm the one who needs to change his opinion. I'm not going to ask God to change his opinion of that, that nameless person out there that I think is a jerk. I, I actually don't enjoy that liberty personally. I... I don't feel free to feel that way because I know that when I'm talking to someone who has believed in Jesus, God thinks that person is worth the life of his one and only son. And if I'm going to agree with God, then I'm going to take a different approach to you. Since God feels the same way about every one of his children, that means if, if you are an employee of an employer who is a believer, then that's how God feels about your employer. If, you're, if your employer is a believer then you owe your employer the same degree of respect that God has for you and the same degree of respect that God has for your employer. And that means that employers owe respect and care for their employees, especially those who are fellow believers. Look again at what Paul says in verse 2. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. And while we're talking about this, if you're an employer and your employee is a believer, according to Paul, you should be devoted to the welfare of your employee. Fellow believers are dear to one another, no matter what defines their relationship. Brothers, sisters, brothers and sisters, husband and wife, parent and child, coach and athlete, teacher and student, employer and employee, and every other relationship that we can describe are all made more beautiful and more resilient when both are believers 
who follow Jesus. So no matter what kind of relationship we find ourselves in, we need to live out the reality of what Paul has taught us today. In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have a believing master should, show, should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we, we've tackled a, a volatile subject this morning. And we've sought to the best of our ability to represent your heart. God, I pray that you'd help us to rise above the petty arguments that take place about what you mean and, and just stand on the truth as you've revealed it. And God, for our own lives, help us to be people who are diligent about our work, who are respectful of our employers, who work diligently to make sure that they succeed because God, when our employers succeed, we succeed. Father, we pray that you would teach us to, to, to deal with every relationship we're in in exactly that same way. Teach us to be respectful for one another. Teach us to see each other in the same way that you see us. For the sake of your glory, we ask these things. And for the good of everyone who's in a relationship, we ask these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. And amen. Well, there's probably somebody out there that you owe some respect to. So, this week, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go out and we're going to just respect them. We're going to respect one another. We're going to love one another with pure hearts fervently. And, and that's your assignment. We've huddled up. We've announced the play. And all that's ready, left is for me to say, ready? Okay, I'll let you go with that. God bless you. Have a good week.